Well, if you know me very well, I'm Andy Callis, by the way, I'm the youth pastor, if you don't know me at all. Um, if you know me very well, though, you'll know that I like sports. I am a, I'm a sports fan. And I know that a lot of you are sports fans as well. And what is it that we love so much about sports? Well, we love the butter, bu- butter, the buzzer-beating, game-winning shot, like in March Madness that a lot of us watch. We love the extra-inning home run that wins the game for your team. We love the game-winning field goal. We love those victorious moments, right? Or maybe it's the team or the player that was terrible last year, but then they have a turnaround season. They do excellent the next year. We love the victorious moments in sports, but what we don't like to talk about too often, especially if it's our own team or if it's our own performance, is we don't like to think about all the failure and all the defeat that oftentimes comes with sports. I remember having a very um, just matter-of-fact conversation with my brother years ago where he was just talking about the reality of failure in sports. He was just saying, you know, you have to learn how to deal with failure, otherwise you will never be a good athlete. Think Think about this. To be a successful hitter in baseball, about what does your batting average need to be? I saw somebody go like this, 300, right? If you're a 300 hitter, hey, you're pretty good. You know what that means? 30% of the time... You get a hit and you get on base. You know what happens the other 70% of the time? You don't. You're out. You go sit back down. So two out of three at-bats, not going real well for you. What does it take to be a good shooter in basketball? 40% or higher, that's a pretty good shooter, right? What does that mean? Every other shot or more, you're missing. So you've got to learn to deal with failure in sports or you'll never get better. You'll never really be able to make it. And I can remember when I was playing baseball, I was such a streaky hitter. So I have one game, I do great. Next game, strike out three or four times. Game after that, do fine. I was very back and forth. And so in my failures, I would come lamenting to my favorite coach. His name was Coach Hecht. And here I come again, you know, kicking the dirt, throwing my bat. Coach Hecht, what am I doing wrong, you know? And he listened to me yet again, kind of griping about, you know, I can't believe I struck out three times again. He's probably thinking, well, you did that last week too, and the week before that too. And, but I just can't believe it, that I, this has happened once again. But there was something about failure that made me perk up and listen and start looking for advice. And oftentimes, Coach Hecht would tell me advice that I'd already heard. He told it to me last week and the week before. Hey, you, you've got to watch the ball. You got to keep your eye on the ball. You need to swing level. You need to shorten up your swing. Things that I knew, but I just, I was in a, a, a state of mind where I was ready to receive some fresh advice. And oftentimes, failure has a way of getting our attention to where we are looking for some help. And this is where we find Israel. As we're getting back into Joshua, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 8, and Israel has failed. They were defeated at the Battle of Ai right after an astounding victory at Jericho. And as you know, much like my hitting uh, record in baseball, Israel was very streaky, right? They're hot for God, then they're cold. And they're hot again, and then they're cold again, back and forth, back and forth. And this was a time where they were cold. And they really needed to be reminded of some important lessons before they moved on in their conquest of the land of Canaan, the promised land. And that's going to be what we look at today as we look at AI 2.0. They're going back into AI and some lessons that they learned. 
So lesson number one, first of all, whenever you're discouraged, whenever you face failure, here's something good to remember. You can trust your just but gracious God. You can trust your just but gracious God. Now looking back at Joshua chapter 7, Israel had been defeated by the people of Ai. 36 soldiers had lost their lives in that defeat. Why did all of this happen? It happened because of one man named Achan. And Achan disobeyed God. He took the things that were devoted to destruction, the things that he should have left alone, and he took those things because he saw them, he wanted them, he kept them for himself. And God held the entire nation responsible, in a sense, for this guy's decision. It says in Joshua 7:11, God accuses Israel, not just Achan, Israel has sinned against me, and he accuses Achan of doing an outrageous thing in Israel. Do you remember the great sin that caused the defeat of an entire nation? Do you remember what it was that he did? This was a few weeks ago. He took a cloak, he took 200 shekels of silver, and he took a bar of gold. Those, that was the outrageous thing that he did. And let's be honest, when we think about this, we can look at that and be like, come on, God, like, outrageous thing? I mean, slight oversight, wrong, okay. But an outrageous thing was done in Israel? And it's really this kind of thinking that is the core of our problem. And it was the core of his problem and the core of Israel's problem. Our standard for righteousness, our standard for holiness is extremely low. And the problem with that is, is God has a standard for righteous and holiness that is extremely high. And we struggle to reconcile those two things. For example, what did Adam and Eve have to do to plunge the universe into corruption and destruction and plunge the entire uh, human race into death. It wasn't any of the ones that we would call the biggies. There was no murder. There was no adultery. It was they ate a piece of fruit. And we kind of look at that and be like, okay, I see how that was wrong, but come on, got a piece of fruit? I mean, why is that such a big deal? But here's the big deal in all this. Whether it's Adam and Eve, whether it's Achan, or whether it's you and I, is we pass off God's standard. Like it should be our standard. Because we realize that there's no way that we can meet it. Because it's absolute perfection. We have a God who's perfect. He expects perfection. He demands it from his subjects, which is mankind. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But we know we can't attain that, so what do we usually do? We look around and we say, well, I'm doing better than this guy over here, this guy over there. And we create a standard that we feel much more comfortable with. But in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says when people measure themselves by themselves, they're unwise. This doesn't mean that you're meeting God's standard if you create another one. And whenever we sin against God or we don't meet God's standard, it's really not about what was done, but it's about who it was done against. As a Puritan prayed in the book, The Valley of Vision, this is a great quote. He said, let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed as in the greatness of the person sinned against. For example, I hope that this would never happen, but I get done preaching today, and you and I meet in the parking lot, we're talking, and we get in an argument and a little tussle, and I push you to the ground. There'd be a lot of things that would be really bad about that, right? Like, the guy who was just preaching just pushed someone to the ground in the parking lot and hurt them. And there would be a lot of bad things about that, but you know, I've committed a crime against you. And if you wanted to file charges against me, you probably could do that. And I 
might get fined. I might do some jail time. I have a, a clean criminal record, so it probably wouldn't be anything too extreme. Now, if I go and I do the same thing on a tour through the White House and me and the president get in a little tussle and I push him to the ground, here's what's going to happen that's going to be a little different than what would happen at Cape Bible Chapel in the parking lot. I'm going to get immediately beat up. The Secret Service will be all over me, beating me up. They're not going to ask questions. They're not going to want to see, hey, does this guy have a clean criminal record or not? It's beat the guy up first. So I would be getting beat up. They're going to say, we're going to, we're going to prosecute this guy to the fullest extent of the law. If there's a way for us to put him in the slammer for the rest of his life, that's what we're going to do. Now you look at those two scenarios, a tussle that ends with me pushing someone to the ground. What's different? It's not the action. It's who the action was committed against. If you commit certain things against someone who's in a certain position, it is different. Something you do against the president is different than you do to someone else that might just be a peer. So when we think about God and we think about that analogy and we relate it to him, God holds quite a position, doesn't he? And I think this is spelled out very nicely in Acts 17, verses 24 through 26. And this is when Paul's in Athens and he's going through and he's just talking about the greatness of the God you don't know. And here's some things that he says about him. He says, he is the maker of heaven and earth. Everything that you can see, oh, and everything that you can't see, that's all his. He owns all that. When you take a deep breath, go ahead and take a deep breath if you want to. God gave you that breath. As you feel your pulse, you have a pulse, don't you? Some of you, I'm not sure, but I think you do. If you're here today, you've got a pulse. You feel your heart beat. God is giving you those beats of your heart. He's giving you the breath that you have. The fact that you live in southeast Missouri or southern Illinois or somewhere close to here right now, God determined the boundaries in which you would live according to Acts 17 so that you would live here right now and at this moment in history in 2023. God is in control of all of those things. He has determined all of those things. He's a pretty big deal. So when you disobey someone who holds that kind of position, it is a big deal no matter how small it might seem to you and I. So what's the proper response from a God like this? Well, he's going to say, it's an outrageous thing. If you didn't meet my standard, do something like that to someone like me. It's an outrageous thing that you've done. And he will deal with those situations with justice. He's the perfect judge. There isn't a taint of unfairness in his decisions. If we conclude God is being unfair, we have to consider the source. We are imperfect people. We have a natural, innate disdain for God and his standard. We can't trust in our own viewpoint in that. So as we think about what happened to Israel in his perfect judge, justice, God judges Achan, he judges Israel, they deserve that, but would they stay defeated? Does God want them to stay defeated? Is he going to write them off? No, because he's just, but he's also a God of great mercy and of great grace. Israel accepted the reason for their defeat. They obeyed God. They took care of the situation with Achan. They put Achan to death. And now this passage starts with a second chance for Israel in Joshua chapter 8. Let's read the first two verses. This is Joshua 8, verses 1 through 2. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. 
See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Israel had lost, and they weren't supposed to lose. This wasn't supposed to happen. Joshua experienced defeat. He was devastated by it in Joshua 7. This Again, this wasn't supposed to happen. Caught them off guard. But if you look back a chapter, you will notice in Joshua 7, 2 through 3, something interesting. Joshua sends out spies. The spies go to Ai. They look around. They say, eh, yeah, it's not very impressive of a city, you know. I, I don't really think we even need to take that many troops, maybe 3,000. So let's take 3,000 troops take care of this city pretty quick we'll come on back Joshua says okay that sounds good that sounds like a great plan so they go off to battle and what happens they lose they're humiliated they're defeated well why did that happen I would say that the first thing they did not do and sometimes the first thing that you and I don't do is they asked nothing of God about this situation they just said hey AI they're next on the list Jericho check AI's next let's go take care of this and they move into action never pausing to think, maybe we should consult God about this one too. And if they had, who knows what would have happened. Maybe God would have said, hey guys, uh, there's a guy named Achan. If you go into this, this next battle with things undone there, you're going to be defeated. So you need to take care of that situation first. But they started off on the wrong foot by not even consulting God about their next, um, their next battle. So they use their own wisdom. They come up with their own plan now they are needing direction, and because failure many times makes us perk our ears up a little bit, they're like, hey, we, we forgot to consult God last time. Maybe we should do that this time. So we're going to do that, and they listen to the Lord. And it would be easy for them to think, man, moving ahead this time, I don't know, we just lost. It would be easy to kind of stay in their dismay and their discouragement. But after they took care of what God wanted them to with Achan, here's what he says to them, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. I'm with you. Hey, remember Jericho? That happened not that long ago, too. Don't forget about the victory that I gave you there. I'm going to give you the same victory at Ai, just like I did at Jericho, and you can trust me in this. When I'm sure they had voices swirling in their heads that were saying, well, what if we lose? What if we lose bigger? Maybe there's hundreds of soldiers that die this time. What if there's another Achan that shows up this time, and maybe things are even worse than the defeat? There's a lot of things that they could have been thinking they needed this encouragement from God. How about you? And how about me? You didn't consult God. There's a mess of your own making that you're now in. You feel discouraged. You feel defeated. And a lot of times it's like, I did this. I struck out at home with my marriage, with my kids, uh, with other relationships, with my faith, at my job, whatever it might be. I've made a mess of fill in the blank. Well, I think that God says the same thing to you and I that he says to Israel here. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I'm still with you. You can still trust me. I'll lead you. I'll guide you to victory. Follow me. He has an encouraging, gracious word for sinners like them and sinners like us. So life lesson, trust God when you're afraid and move forward in faith. Trust God when you're afraid and move forward in faith. He will provide in his timing. Now, as they move forward in faith, 
um, this battle was not going to look like the last one. So just because God helped you with the last situation and it looked like this doesn't mean the next situation is going to look exactly the same. Notice this. At Jericho, they won in miraculous fashion. They had a very interesting slash weird battle strategy, right? I want you to march around the city one time for six days, and then on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times, and I want you to blow the trumpets, I want you to shout, and then the walls are going to fall down flat. Now, that was an absolute miracle that God did for them. This time, it's supernatural direction, but very natural means to win the battle. It involved military strategy. Because here's what I want you to do this time. I want you to go and I want you to create an ambush. I want you to hide from them. You're going to lure them out. Here's what's going to happen. And this is going to take one day. It's going to look like more of a normal battle. But despite the means being different, nonetheless, I'm telling you, I'm going to be with you and you're going to win. But they still had to exercise faith and trust God in a little different strategy. But do you know what else he promised? And I think that this is so interesting he promised spoils. He promised spoils. He's like, you can take things that are in the city as plunder for yourselves. This is very ironic because do you know the very thing that got Achan and his entire family killed? Taking the spoils. Taking the spoils. Another life lesson here. Trust God's timing. What if Achan had been like, you know what, I'm going to trust God. I want that so bad, but I'm going to wait because he told me not to. And then they come to the next city and God says, hey, take anything that you want, anything you see, it's yours. If he would have waited, he would have saved himself and his entire family. But he didn't. He didn't trust God's timing and you and I do the same thing so often. We see it and we want it right now. I want it right now. I, just, I don't just want it, God. I want it now. I want you to deliver this on my timetable. And so oftentimes God says, no, my timetable is best. You have to wait Wait on me, trust in me, trust in my timing, and you'll receive the benefits from it. I think of Psalm 37. It talks so much about trusting God and waiting on God. Here's a couple verses out of Psalm 37. In verse 5, it says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Verse 7, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 9, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 25, I have been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And then the last verse, verse 34 says, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. What's the psalmist telling us? Trust God. Wait for him. He'll act in the right time. You will prosper in the right time. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of your children all in the right time. Don't be like the wicked who take matters and timing into their own hands. That's what Achan did. He's like, don't be like Achan. Trust God. Trust his timing. So remember, God is just. God will punish sin, but he is extremely gracious. Those like Israel that come back after failure and they listen to him, they say, God, provide direction for us. Help us to obey you. They trust his timing and direction. He's going to be there for them in great ways. So the next lesson that we can learn from this story is another lesson of trust. When we're fearful, when we're defeated, when we failed, trust your fallen but faithful leader. 
Trust your fallen but faithful leader. This is our second point. Basketball icon Michael Jordan, he famously said, I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I've missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life. And what's he say at the end? And that's why I succeed. Because he learned to deal with his failures. And he still was a faithful leader despite many of his failures. And they succeeded a lot. If you know much about the 1990s Bulls, that was my favorite team growing up, they were always the team to beat. They went to the NBA Finals six times, and they won six times. And do you know who the MVP was all six times? Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. He failed. He missed the shot at times, but he was a faithful leader, and his teammates knew it. Everybody around him, they were always better because of it. It didn't matter who the Bulls got on their team. He made everybody better. He was a clear leader, and he'd proven himself despite his failure, and people followed him. We see, we see the failure so clearly of many biblical leaders. There's a lot of men who struggle to be faithful at different times in their life. We see Moses, who's highly revered, and yet he still had such a rough start in Egypt and then went off to Midian for 40 years. It really wasn't until the last 40 years of his life that he really was a faithful leader for God's people. We see David, a man after God's own heart. He started well, but then he ended with his family being an absolute mess. His son Solomon did the same thing, started with great wisdom as a young man, ended following foreign gods. But then there's Joshua. He's one of the few people in the Bible where he started well and he ended well. He was a faithful sidekick to Moses way back in the beginning in Egypt. He was faithful throughout the wilderness in helping lead there. He trusted God to give them the land of the giants. Him and Caleb were the only two that came back and said, hey, we can take this land when the spies were sent out. He succeeded Moses successfully, leading the people across the Jordan River miraculously in the decisive victory at Jericho. He was a faithful leader. But as we saw before, he wasn't perfect. There's times where he just was like, hey, let's go do this. He didn't consult God. He's lamenting after that loss, kind of like, man, God, why are we even here? Maybe we should have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan River. He would be discouraged and dismayed just like the next guy, but yet he would come back and be faithful. And we're going to read a pretty large section here of Joshua chapter 8, verses 3 through 22. As I read through this, I want you to take note of every time it's talking about Joshua. And what are some things that we can learn from this faithful leader? Starting in verse 3, it says, So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and he went to the place of ambush, and he lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai, but Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning, and he mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. 
And all of the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all of his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all of Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Now, not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the men who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke from the city went up, then they turned back and they struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. The first thing I want to point out here about Joshua is a fallen but faithful leader is still going to take God at his word. Joshua had been defeated. There were questions and doubts, I'm sure, that lingered in his mind, just like everybody else that was with him. But yet, faithful leaders like him still have a pattern of obeying God, even when it's hard. And notice this, though, that, Josh, that Joshua was given general orders from God saying, hey, I want you to take all of your fighting men, not just 3,000 like last time, that didn't work. We're going to take all of your fighting men, and I want you to set an ambush too. But he left a lot of the details up to Joshua. He entrusted Joshua to complete the plan. In verse 8 it says, As soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. There was this partnership between Joshua and the Lord. He says, it was according to the word of the Lord, but I have also commanded you. And those who have been called to leadership, they have direct commands from God. That's called scripture. That's called God's word. There are things that you should see in a faithful leader where it's like this is what they are living by. And you should see a pattern of that in their life. But there should be a partnership between them and God too because God doesn't spell out absolutely every single detail that he wants them to do. Just like um, with Ai, that Joshua has a, he has details that he has to fill in. Now in Jericho, God said exactly what I want you to do and I'm going to do a miraculous thing. Here he says I want you to set an ambush, but some of the other details I'm leaving up to you, Joshua. So the people had to trust God, but they had to trust Joshua as well. And he'd given them the reason to do so because of his past record of faithfulness. Another thing is you're going to see a fallen but faithful leader deeply care for their people. 
A couple things that we see about Joshua here that he dwells among the people in verse 9. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush, and they lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Now think about the position that Joshua was in. He could have said, I'm going to set a nice little homestead tent up here, kind of on the hill by myself. And people probably would have understood that and said, yeah, you're Joshua, like you're the head honcho here. So you know, if you want to do that, that's totally fine. But instead, we see that this is a time Joshua knew, I need to be among the people. I need to spend the night with the people because the people maybe are still struggling with discouragement and remembering the failure that we just had against AI. I need to be here for them, to answer questions, to encourage them during this time before this great battle. Another thing that we see is Joshua interceded for his people. In verse 13... It says, so they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city, but Joshua spent that night in the valley. So Joshua and the people and the rest of the soldiers, they head towards Ai, and in verse 13, we see him spend the night in the valley. Well, what is he doing? Well, this seems pretty reminiscent of what Jesus did in Luke chapter 6, the night before he picked, he made a huge decision the next day. He picked his 12 disciples. And so the night before, what does he do? He goes, he goes to the mountaintop and he consults with God. He prays and he talks with God. And Lord, help me with this decision. Who are the 12 that you want to be my disciples? In, in Luke 5, 16, it says that this was Jesus' pattern. So what was Joshua doing down in the valley? Well, I think what he was doing is he was interceding for the people at that time. Because that's what good leaders do. They pray for their people, even when they might be struggling themselves. Also, they intercede for people during the battle. So there's a time where Joshua needs to be with the people. There's a time when Joshua needs to be alone. And we also see, though, in this passage that Joshua, when it's time to go to battle, he's going to be with the people. He's not going to be off by himself, but he's going to be in the midst of the battle, helping them. In verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. So it seems that the raising of the javelin, it served as a signal uh, for the men in ambush to come out. But also, as we'll look at here in a second, according to verse 26, this was a sign that God would use to give them victory. Very reminiscent of Exodus 17, when Moses is holding up his staff when they're fighting the Amalekites. And if you remember what happens in that story, when Moses keeps his staff up, what happens? Israel wins, right? When Moses starts to drop his staff, Israel starts to lose to the Amalekites. So Moses is trying. He's wearing down. He has to have a couple people come and help him keep his staff up. Do you know who was down there fighting the Amalekites? Joshua. Joshua was the one down there fighting the battle, and he was reliant on Moses to help him. Now we see Joshua. It's all come full circle. It's his turn. He never drops the javelin. He holds it up until the battle is done. He is there in the midst of the battle. He's interceding for the people just like God wants him to do. In the same way as we think about you and I, God has given you faithful leaders. Fallen people, for sure, because I'm one of them. But fallen faithful leaders in your local church. And there are certain things that you should expect to see from leaders in your local church. Paul and Peter both spell this out quite clearly. Paul talks about the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. 
He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, as overseer, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a lover of, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? But he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. The devil. These are the things that should be characterized by people that God has placed over you as leaders. They should be above reproach, faithful to their spouse, humble, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not greedy, managing their household well, and all these other things. And Peter adds to this in 1 Peter 5, 1-5. He says, So exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as the partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Your leaders should have shepherding hearts. They should not be domineering. They should exercise oversight eagerly, willingly, and graciously. Paul says this is a noble task. Peter says, hey, if you have someone leading in this way, they can expect an unfading crown of glory from Jesus himself whenever life is over. This task is weighty. It's noble. They should be held to it. But you also have to remember that your leaders are fallen. They are not always going to make the right decisions. They're going to fail you. They need grace. They need forgiveness. They need you to follow their lead still. It's hard to lead and it's hard to follow. The Bible calls this submission. And submission's not easy. To submit to someone means I've got to trust you. Even though maybe I don't really know what you're, what you're doing here. And it's difficult. But they both need one another's prayers and support. The leaders and the followers. Pray for your leaders. Pray for us as we seek to lead you in a godly way. And like Joshua, we want to take God at his word. Uh, even in discouragement, even in past failures, we want to take God at his word and we want to follow his lead. We want to care deeply for you. We want to pray for you. We want to intercede for you. We want to be there in the battle. That is our aim. So God wants you in difficult times, trust your leaders, trust those that God has placed over you to help you so you can both move on together toward victory. The last lesson here is don't trust in your capable but prideful self. Don't trust in your capable but prideful self. The last lesson here comes from a negative example. The negative example is the king of Ai, and he embodies this very well. So let's finish this passage and look at what we learn about him and what we learn about who not to trust. Joshua 8, 23 through 29. But the king of Ai they took alive, and they brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the last, 
had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. In all who fell that day, both men and women were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand from which he stretched out the javelin till he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city, Israel took his plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is this day, and he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and they threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. As we think about this king of Ai, I'm sure he was a very capable man. Uh, he was a leader. He was, he was the head guy of this entire city of 12,000 people. I'm sure that he had to learn a lot to be in charge of a place like that. I'm sure he had to know a lot about the engineering required for a city to function of that size. I'm sure he had to learn a lot about politics involved in leadership, how to supply what the people needed, how to lead them in battle. I'm sure that he was a very capable person with a lot of experience and talents. But do you know what can ruin experience and what can ruin talent? Pride. He was filled with pride. Pride has ruined so many. We see in Scripture, initially it ruined Satan in his pride. He said, I will set my throne on high and I will be like God. In Isaiah 14, 13 through 14. Pride ruined Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, they thought, I know better than God. I will eat from that tree and I'll do what I see fit. In Daniel chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar ruined in his pride. He's cut down from the throne and he's made like a wild animal. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He hates our pride because in it we say, you know what, God, I think I know better than you do. I think I've got this down. He's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. There's things that you don't know, and we see this in the king of Ai. He's thinking, they're back for more. Another easy W, like, all right, everybody, come on, let's get up, let's go out there, let's do our thing again, and let's see if we can do this early. Maybe we're back in time for lunch. And in his pride, there were things he was blinded to, though, right? In verse 14, he did not know that there was an ambush that lie behind the city. He's going out, here we go, we've got this under our belt. There's an ambush laying behind him he doesn't know about. Verse 15, he didn't know that Joshua and all of Israel, they were pretending to be beaten. He's thinking... Hey, we're, we're whooping them again. They were faking it. He had no idea. And he didn't know the only reason that they won in the first place was because God ordained that that would happen due to Israel's sin. It had nothing to do with his ingenuity and his ability. Lesson for us, pride blinds us. Pride blinds us. We cannot see things correctly when we are filled with pride. We think we have it figured out, but there's a lot of things that we don't know. And what did this lead him to do? This led him to do something super foolish. He empties the entire city to go after Israel. Not something he even needed to do, but he chose to do. He's like, we've got this. Let's take care of this quickly. He empties the entire city, and he left them wide open for attack. Proverbs 25, 28 talks about a guy like this, and he compares him to not having city walls. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Well, his city wasn't even broken into. He just left the walls, said, we've got this. We don't need the protection of the city walls. He lacked much self-control in his pride. Another lesson for us, 
Pride causes us to do extremely foolish things. Extremely foolish things. And in the end of his, I'm sure very capable, but prideful leadership, here's what happens. The absolute destruction of his city, the death of everyone in his city, everyone that he knew, died. And you know who the last person was to see all of that happen? It was him. He was the last one alive. He saw the entire thing burn. He saw all these people die. The last thing that he saw before his death was the consequences of his own prideful actions. Boy, that had to hurt. And I don't know about you, but when I operate my pride and I see things like that, I see things come and I see destruction happen, things go the wrong way because of my own pride, boy, that hurts. And I hate to see that in the life of other people too. It's very tragic. I heard somebody say once that pride is something you see so clearly in everybody else, you don't see it very well in yourself. You can always spot a prideful person, but we don't see it in ourselves very well, and that can lead us down a very dark, destructive path like the king of Ai went. To humble ourselves, we need to remember some truths from God's word. A great one is one that you probably know, Jeremiah 17, 9. Your heart is deceitful above all things. The, very th- the desires that you have, the very things that you um, want to do, oftentimes you're, you're deceived. Our own hearts deceive us above all things. That can humble us to remember, like, my, I can't follow my heart. I don't know where it's going to lead me. James 3, 2 says we stumble in many ways. A lot of times we forget or don't want to acknowledge how often we fail, even if it's just in our thoughts and our motivations. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, be careful when you think you stand. That's when you fall, especially when you're standing on your pride. We can all be prone to it, so we have to be aware of it, just like the king of Ai. We're capable of a lot of things. We have experience. We have skills in different things, but we have to remember our place before God. Don't trust in your prideful yet capable self. As we wrap it up today, and again, we think about sports. Sports are great. Sports are filled with failures and filled with defeats, but the best athletes respond to failure and they respond to defeat in a way that they learn from it and they move ahead as a better player. Joshua and Israel, they learned from their failures. They moved ahead in faith. They trusted God once more to lead them, and they were better because of it. They learned things like, you know what? God is just. God is going to punish our sin, but we can trust him. We can still trust him. He's going to be gracious to us. He's going to be merciful to us. He's going to take care of us as we move forward in faith. We can trust the leaders that God has given us. We want to rely on them. We want to hold them to a high standard, but also know that they're going to fail. They're going to fall, and they need our, they need our submission, they need our trust, they need our prayers as they seek to pray for us and intercede for us. And we also can learn that though we're capable, don't operate in pride. We don't know everything. We can't handle everything. The king of Ai provides an example not to follow as everything was ruined by his pride. So as you think about your own life, today and struggles that you have and failures that you're dealing with and discouragement and things like that, what should you do? Remember these things. God doesn't want you to wallow in defeat. He doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust in his grace and his mercy, trust in his guidance, trust in the people he's put around you to help lead and guide you. He wants you to trust in them, rely on them. He wants you to be humble enough to admit that I'm a prideful person. Oftentimes I trust in myself. God, help me instead to trust in you and trust in those you've placed around me. 
These things are difficult for us to do, so let me end our time with praying for us that God can help us to do these things. Lord, as we come before you today and we look at Israel in the Old Testament and we do see how so oftentimes, God, they are hot, they are cold, they are hot, they are cold, back and forth in their affection and their obedience for you. And uh, it's easy for us to point fingers, God. It's easy for us to measure ourselves by ourselves and say, well, at least I'm not like them. But we are. We are. We are just like them, God. We're, our affection for you, our obedience toward you, it's hot and cold. And we struggle, and it leads us to failures, and it leads us to defeat, and it leads us to discouragement. And there are some lessons that we need to learn here too today, God, and it's probably things that we've heard before. It's things that we know but in our discouragement, failure, and defeat, there are things that we need a fresh perspective on. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to remember that though you are just, God, you are so gracious. We can trust in a God like you. You tell us to not fear. You tell us to not be discouraged. That you're with us. That you will lead and guide us. You will take us to victory. Help us to remember that today, God, as we might be wrestling with discouragement and failure. Lord, help us to remember you have put godly leadership over us so that we can benefit from it. You have people that want to intercede for us, that are interceding for us, that we can trust, and that are there for us to be in the midst of the battle that we're facing. And I pray that you would help us to be humble enough to come to those leaders and say, I, I need some advice, I need some help, I need your prayers right now. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be humble. That pride is so sneaky, because we see it in everybody else, but we don't see it in ourselves, but it's there. And I pray that you would help us to kill that pride and to remember things about ourselves that would humble us. And remember things about you that would humble us, God. We thank you for these lessons today. God, help us to apply these this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.